0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. How many of you enjoyed last week with Leif? Wasn't it good? I have gotten many, many reports of healing that just keep coming in. And uh, not that he really prayed for healing, but a lot of people got healed in the process. And so it was just so good. And uh, John was sharing about uh, what Leif is doing here in the, uh, in the world, uh, in missions, and we want to get behind that. I, I want to continue that theme. Uh, two weeks ago, I was preaching on the love of God, the baptism of love. And uh, we talked about, I'm going to do a little bit of review because I want to build on this. I want to tie it in with something, a conversation I had with life that has stirred me for a week. I've been soaking in and I want to share it with you, but I want to lay a foundation this morning. So let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask God that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, instruct our hearts and Lord, bring my thoughts together that you would be able to communicate what's on your heart through me in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Um, Two weeks ago, we were talking about a baptism of love, and we talked about how if you look in Scripture, and you look at the theme of the love of God, there are three dimensions to the love of God, and you can look at one of those three, or all three of those three dimensions in any passage that speaks of the love of God, and often we are familiar with one or two dimensions, but we don't understand all three. And so it's important for us to really fill out our understanding. And it's a helpful study. Then once you get this as your framework to begin to study through those passages that speak on the love of God and study it from the perspective of all three of those dimensions. And so the first dimension to the love of God is God's love for us. That's where it begins. The foundation of this thing is God. God's love for us, he initiates it, his affection for us and us as the object of his love. For God so loved that he gave. He gave his son. And so we were the object of his affection. And so that is the foundation of all the love of God. We t- we touched on that this morning during communion that when Jesus died for us, he died to restore or to redeem our value, it wasn't that we were invaluable. I used to believe that God, that through the death of Christ, He bestowed value upon me. That I was this worthless worm, and that because He was willing to pay a high price, then I guess I was—I was—I had been that 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 uh, value had been bestowed upon me. But it was almost in the back of my mind. I felt like. Jesus bought me and God got stuck with me because Jesus bought this defective little item and brought it home and the father said, I guess I got to keep it. It's kind of like a Father's Day present, an ugly tie, you know, and the dad will wear it because, well, you know, my son bought it. And that's how I looked at myself. I don't know where I picked that up. I, I imagine it's just part of our fallen human nature, but that's really how I looked at it. And the fact is, Jesus died for us because we were valuable. He didn't impute value at Calvary. He imputed that value at creation. And that's a very important thing. And I'm not going to get it. I've been been beating up on one school of theological thought a lot lately, so I'm not going to get into that this morning. But there is different schools of thought have a different, if you will, an anthropology, their view of man, their scriptural view of man. And those theological uh, schools of thought that really fixate on the fallenness of man and that tend to retain that view even after redemption tend to keep man in, a, 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 in emphasizing our need for humility. They devalue man. And we need to understand that God created us with great value. We were made in his image It's nothing to be proud of. It was something that was given to us as a gift. We didn't do anything to earn it. He just made us that way. But when we realize that, we realize the value of man, it will cause us to see ourselves and others differently. It'll cause us to relate with people differently when people are lost in sin and bound in sin and i'm i'm talking of the most the greatest perversion and the greatest types of evil in spite of that they retain original value they carry value precisely because they were created in the image of god and when we realize that we relate with people differently and the fact is we can speak to that value or we can speak to their sin and whichever one we speak to is the one that will come to the forefront and relate with us. If your primary way of relating with people is as a depraved sinner who's far from God and has a hatred for God, if that's your primary view of them, then it will cause your approach to them to be a certain way and you will, you will. that's the person you'll meet. That's the one you'll call forth. Or if you recognize their innate value that they were made in the image of God, and you relate with them, and you see them in that. And I'm not talking about negating the fact that man needs to be reconciled to God at all. Unredeemed man is a valuable coin that cannot be found. He can't be spent. He can't be, uh, you know, you have to find it in order to redeem its value. But we need to understand that man is innately valuable and when we see it that way we relate with people in a different way and more often than not that's what will come to the forefront so how do you treat people do you treat them like they are of tremendous value some of you have met uh, pastor Robbie over in Newton the, the church that Pam now attends she's jumped in with him how many of you ever met pastor Robbie I went over and met him I'm gonna speak at his banquet this Friday night so I wanted to go over and see the ministry and uh, you know what really touched me? We're talking. I'm a fellow pastor. You know, I'm an important person. I come in there, and I'm I'm talking with him. And there was a guy that was most likely homeless. He looked homeless, and he looked like he'd been homeless for many years. And Robbie, when he walked by, Robbie said, "Excuse me," and and in essence, he was saying, "I need you to wait a minute." Well, he greeted that guy and gave him a hug and treated him like the important person that he was, and then went back to our conversation. About two hours later, we're in his office after we'd done the tour, and I told him, and it really so touched me, it moved me to tears, I said, I noticed this about you, that you have a great value for these people, and it permeates this ministry, that you wouldn't talk. That's that's one of those values. That's one of the values you would die for. That, you'll die on that hill. That's something you would not tolerate. If you had workers, if you had volunteers here that didn't carry that value for these people, that was one of the things you wouldn't tolerate. And uh, he he was he was saying, Yeah, you're right. But it was so evident just in that little snapshot, and it so touched me, because I was one of those people. And the fact that an important man like Robbie, who established this ministry and built this ministry and runs this ministry the fact is he was he got saved in prison and he was one of those people but it just it just blessed me that in essence he was saying hey pastor you're going to need to wait because the important people are coming by and that's a beautiful thing see that's a different perspective Seeing the value in people, and that really comes from our biblical anthropology and our view of redemption and creation and all of that. Again, your theology matters, and so your belief will determine your behavior, so we need to make sure our belief is right. And so this whole thing of the love of God with us as the object of God's affection that is the foundational facet of God's love, the first dimension, the foundational. And if you don't get that, you'll never be able to walk in the others. You can try to manufacture it, and you can try to be loving. Good luck on that. If you only can, the only thing you can give is what you receive. And if you are not feeding off the love of God for you, you'll never be able to flow in the love of God through you. You'll have a limited. You have a limited uh, reserve of human affection and human compassion. There is such a thing called compassion fatigue. You ever had that happen, where you know you've reached your limits, and if Jesus doesn't step in, they're not going to get something nice. And so we need to be flowing from the love of God. We need to be feeding off of that. And so the first dimension, the foundation of love, is the love of God for us. And it bestows that, that value upon us. We have been separated from our value, not from God's perspective, but in our own hearts and minds. But when we're separated from the love of God and when we encounter his love, it imparts that value. It restores it. It validates our original value. And it's a beautiful thing. That is the foundation. Jesus loves you. I want to say it was Karl Barth, the great theologian. Someone asked him one time, "What, what is the greatest theological thought you ever discovered? In all of your studies, he wrote volumes of theological studies. And he began to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is the greatest theological thought. And if you don't have that, you don't have the foundation upon which to build everything else. That's why we need a revelation of his love. But when that happens, we move into a, the, the second dimension. When we really become rooted and established in his love for us, it births a reciprocal love back for him. Scripture is very clear. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. When I encounter the love of God, I can't help but love him back. It is, God has wired all of us in such a way we can't help ourselves. I think I probably touched on this two weeks ago, but that is a very feminine expression. It is in that sense in which we are the bride of Christ. You know, the Bible never tells a wife to love her husband. That bum you out, guys? You can't pull that one out. the Bible says you have to. No, it says husbands love your wife. Why? Because he knows that he wired women in such a way that if you love her, she will not be able to help but love you back. That's a, that's a female thing. I remember, a matter of fact, I just came across her picture on Facebook. I went to, to Bible school with these two brothers and these two sisters. And the two brothers liked the two sisters and the two sisters weren't in, interested in the two brothers. Matter of fact, one of the sisters was not shy about letting them know she was not interested and enumerating the reasons why. The other one was a nice, you know, she was more timid and, very kind about it but she wasn't interested but these two boys were fixated on these girls and they were going to get them and you know what today they both had both those brothers married those two sisters they got all kinds of babies and grandbabies and, and i think the one the one that wasn't interested i think they had like 9 kids he won her heart and i tell you what my respect for those two dudes rose exponentially it takes it takes a, a, a courage it takes manhood to go after someone that's not interested and when you're shot down to go back. And they did again and again and they won their, the hearts of these women. That's an amazing thing. Matter of fact, I'm getting off on a little trail here. This is, this is a freebie, okay? Ladies, make a man, single ladies. Everybody's single in the house, raise your hand. All right, ladies, make the man work for it, okay? He needs to pursue you. You know, the sperm pursues the egg and not the other way around. The smallest expression of masculine and feminine, the sperm goes to the egg. The egg just drops down in the waiting room and waits, looking pretty. You know? And the men fight over her. They're going after her. Because here's the deal. The pursuit of the woman is the very proving ground that will make him the leader he needs to be in the marriage. Okay? And if you rescue him from the pursuit, then you'll be scratching your head and complaining that he's not the leader that you desired him to be. But you rescued him from one of the primary classrooms in which you could have learned that skill, and that was the pre-marriage relationship. Okay? So there's something about a man that has to pursue before I got saved, I used to say this, and it wasn't because I was this confident, arrogant guy. Although I was arrogant, I wasn't confident. It was just a veneer, but I used to say, I don't, I don't, I don't chase women, they chase me. <laughs> what I really meant, truth be told, is I am not going to go after any woman who has not made it abundantly clear she's interested because I'm afraid of rejection. I was used to living in the world where it was the other way around. There was a a swapping of the gender roles. Not in the way we talk about today, but in the responsibilities. And so when I met my wife, I couldn't tell if she was interested. She was extremely frustrating. I was very attracted to her. I saw her at the prayer meetings. I thought she's good looking and she prays. Glory to God. I felt the anointing come in the room. Did you feel that? (laughs) So I thought that's, and and the Lord actually spoke to me. He told me, he said, that's your wife. Treat her like she deserves. And I thought, well, I probably ought to get to know her. That would probably be a prerequisite to a good marriage. And I started hanging around her, but I couldn't tell if she was interested. The only encouragement I had is she did this very rare thing. She laughed at my jokes. It was a rare thing. But I would, I would hang around her. And, and it was like the only way she would serve me any encouragement is I had to hit the ball over the net and she'd return it. Then I was like, your turn. She'd just stand there with her racket. She's only returning balls. She's not serving them. And it was good for me. Because it, it made me deal with some of those issues of my heart. Now, how we got into this, I don't know. This is more of a, this is more of a Valentine's message. But anyway... Uh, the fact is, I won her heart because I pursued her. I put myself out on a limb again and again. She, I, I had no idea if she was interested until I told her I was interested in her. And to my great relief, she, was, she returned the ball. And then I waited, and she didn't hit me another one. So here's the deal. The foundation is the love of God. We need to reel that one in. Okay. Get back to our original message. The foundation is we are the object of his affection. The second dimension of the love of God is that we enter into the love affair in the Godhead, The, the, the affection the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Spirit, the Spirit has for the Father. They're always deferring to one another. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit turns us back to the Father, and there's this circle of life, and we enter into the love the Father has for the Son because we get a revelation of Him, and once you see Him for who He is, It's like the old 50s song, to know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. You can't help but love him. When you see his love for you, it will birth that affection for him. The secret of living the holy life, if you want to live in holiness, the number one key is to get a revelation of his love for you. See, we put this thing around. We think, well, if I'll start behaving, then God will love me more. As if we're gonna earn his love and then he's gonna give us the affection because of our performance. When in actuality, you'll never be able to truly perform. You'll never be able to live the Christian life without a revelation of his love. Because it's not you doing it anyway. It's not you trying to imitate Christ. It's you participating in him. And the way that happens is when you get a revelation of his love, it births a reciprocal response. You can't help but love him, and then you don't want to hurt his heart. Jesus put it this way, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We tend to look at that as some kind of negative thing. Oh man, he's calling me on the carpet. You know, if you really love me. No, what he's saying is if you love me, obedience will begin to flow from your heart. And so it's not about white-knuckling it to prove your love. It's about getting a revelation of his love for you that will burn this, burst this corresponding eruption of affection towards him and it will cause you to live the holy life. So God's love, you as the object of his affection, his love for you, is the taproot of the Christian life. And if you're struggling in your Christian life, if you're struggling with faith, faith works by love. Galatians, very clear. So get a revelation of his love. If you're struggling with obedience, obedience comes out of love. Get a revelation of his love, which will birth a love in you, and you will enter into this affection. So the first the first dimension of the love of God is the love of God coming towards you, and you are the object of his affection. And you just kind of marinate in that for a while. And it will cause this this thing to begin to erupt in you and you enter into the love of God for his son and the son for the father, you begin to have a love for him. And all of a sudden, those things begin to fall off. Those things you once struggled with, you find yourself tempted, but I don't want to hurt his heart. I'm not going to do those things anymore because I don't want to hurt the heart of the one who loved me so well. And it gives you the strength to walk away from temptation. Temptation. But there is a third dimension of love. It's love maturing. These are progressive dimensions. And too often we preach the last one without the foundation of the first one and we find ourselves struggling. The third dimension of the love of God is we pick up his love for others. We begin to care about the things he cares about. We begin to adopt his value system. I said a couple of weeks ago, I was going to say I said jokingly. It really wasn't jokingly. I really do care about furniture now. If I would have never got married, I could have cared less. You could have put a, a bucket in the middle of the room, and as long as I had a TV, I'd have been good. But now I care about lamps and rugs. Why? Because my wife, she, she'll send it to me all the time just this morning. Look at this fireplace. Oh, emoji. Nice, nice. Hug, kisses. You know. Oh, boop, send, you know. Why do I do that? Because she loves him and I love her. So I just, I want to make her happy. You got to see what she has me doing to our laundry room. (laughs) I'm going to post some pictures when I'm done, but I've created a whole wall of cabinetry. So she has this, I'm going to wallpaper our laundry room. I'm probably going to put a chandelier in there. I'm telling you what, she's going to have to get dressed up in the pearls and black dress just to go do the laundry. I could really care less except that she cares. And so I've tackled this project. It's the same way with the love of God. When we we love him, we love what he loves. And we begin to pick up his burden. And we become one with that thing. We we become incarnate in the burden. We, We become a living expression of that thing. This is love matured. We pick up his mission. We care about what he cares about. The things that break his heart now begin to break ours. I think Leif mentioned the the mullah, the the well-known mullah in the country that he was in. And this guy had that encounter with the Lord. Did he, he share about that? And he said, the guy went back home and he called Leif. He said, I see brokenness everywhere. He had an encounter with the love of God. And he said, I see brokenness everywhere. He had lived in his country his whole life and didn't see brokenness everywhere but suddenly he encountered God, kind of unclear even where the lines are, where his surrender is, where, what, what his revelation is, but just encountering him, all of a sudden he began to see brokenness. Why? Because he encountered the one who loves humanity, and all of a sudden his eyes were open to the needs of humanity. When we really know him, all of a sudden we take on his mission. We literally are freed from our own self-centeredness. We become disentangled from those things that serve us and we begin to, this sacrificial thing, this willingness to sacrifice for his purposes begins to overtake us. And I want to tell you, that's when life really begins to be lived. Up until that time, life, when we live for ourselves, life is boring we really are boring people. When it's all about us, we're boring. But it's when we pick up his desires, his needs, his, his, seeing the needs that move his heart. God has no needs. You, you understand what I'm saying? And so we become captured by him, by what he's saying. So I, I lay all that out there to say, uh, we had a conversation after church Sunday, and Life was talking about, he went into this, one of the, the countries that's, very, you know, closed in most people's minds to the gospel. It's just uh, one of those places. And and he had this, this deep burden to go in this one area that has not been touched by the gospel in a thousand years. And he said he just, he wanted to go in and see the gospel make an impact in that area. And so he raised tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, a boatload of money. And then he got to the airport and they said, you can't go there. We're shut down all flights. He said, well, can I get a flight to the, a country near there? No, you're just trying to get in there. So he ended up having to buy a, 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 a vacation package just to get into the... He's spending all this money trying to get in because this thing's burning in him. He's got... Because there's this thing, this challenge to the gospel. For a thousand years, there's been this stronghold in the earth and everybody that lives under that dome has, has not been able to be reached by the gospel and he's got this thing burning in him. And so he goes and he gets there and as soon as he steps into the country, he said a storm cloud, it's not the rainy season, but a storm cloud followed him everywhere he went. Massive floodings, he said it was so demonic. And the rest of his team, he had some others that were supposed to get in, they couldn't get in. Their phones stopped working, he couldn't reach them. And so he's left in that, that place, that hardened place that nobody's been able to penetrate for a 1,000 years. He said he's sitting in the hotel and he gets calls from the people that were setting it up. They said we're going to have to cancel the whole thing. Everything's flooded. We can't do it. And he said he just broke down. He's just weeping, just devastated, just heartbroken. He thought, you know, he's so wanting to see this thing break through. He said, the Lord came in and began to minister to him. And so I was intrigued by this story and I began to press him and ask him some questions about, you know, what led him to do that and, you know, all those things. And he said this said something so interesting that and I've not been able to shake it since he said I don't know if I can put it into words he said it it wasn't necessarily that God was calling me because he told his family goodbye he thought he was going to die on this trip but he said it it wasn't even that I necessarily felt that God was calling me he said it was more like I was calling God And it was like he was, you know, kind of just thinking it through as he was saying it. Man, I haven't been able to shake that ever since. That really mean? I believe it's this last expression of his love where we pick up a burden God has. It's no longer that he has to give us an assignment, it's not that we're doing it out of calling and obligation and obedience. We do it out of a burden, and we don't even need God to tell us. We see what breaks his heart, and we tackle it before he he moves on our heart. And I just began to think about this thing. It's like we make a big deal out of the apostolic call in our stream, and rightly so. The word apostle means sent one. It means God puts grace on somebody and sends them into a place to create breakthrough for the kingdom and lay foundations, a foundation for the gospel, a foundation for the kingdom. That's one dimension of apostolic ministry. And the word itself literally means sent one. But I think there's a higher calling than apostolic ministry, and that is intercessory ministry. And what I mean by that is this. In apostolic ministry, you're called and you're sent. But in intercessory ministry, you're doing the calling. You're willing to go into that place and identify with that need. And it really goes back to what I saw a couple of weeks ago. I shared with with you a couple weeks ago. We were in prayer on a Thursday morning. And uh, there were some things I, I saw the Lord do, as we were praying and just crying out to the Lord, and all of a sudden I saw this picture of a human heart, and I saw the Lord reach into the heart, and there was this black-like stand, if you will. It was just like a little, little black stand, and there were slots evenly cut out in the stand, and there were silver bars stacked neatly in a row, and all of them were on their end. They were about about this big, they looked like plates for printing currency, and they were about two inches thick, and they were solid silver. I, it wasn't the Lord said anything, but I just knew all of this when I saw it, and I couldn't see what they were, they were, but I could tell these were valuable bars of silver. They looked like plates for printing currency, and I knew as soon as I saw them, I said, oh, it's a value system. Later on, I looked up the, you know, in that, that uh, on google that great theological warehouse you know uh scripture or prophetic meaning of silver and it said it it represents value i'm thinking yeah it does i can tell you that from what i saw and i knew the first bar as i saw the lord reach in this heart he was gonna he picked up the first bar and i knew it it's not that i could read it it's not that he said anything it's just i knew written over it was our own personal safety And then he grabbed the second bar and the second bar had written over it his purposes. And I watched him take the first bar and move it in the second position and the second bar into the primary position. And so now the primary drive in the value system of that heart was his purposes. And our own personal safety took second place. And I knew it was a, a process the Lord was inviting us into as a people. And I'm telling you this morning that a revelation of his love, in moving through love, in maturing love, in going through these different dimensions and, and allowing it to impact our hearts. so God does a work so we come out the other side, that we really do live from that position, that the thing that burns in our life the most is His purposes, and our own personal safety takes second seat to that. That's what God's inviting us into. There's this sacrificial dimension to love that He is, there's an open invitation to us. And I want us to keep pressing in for that and keep praying and keep asking because that's not something we can work up. This is something, in order to side against your own safety for a higher purpose, it takes supernatural love. A father will dodge in front of a bullet for his family but he won't just do it for anybody because there's this innate drive to protect ourselves, And it's the love that he has for his family that will cause him to, and just out of a reaction, jump in the, the place of a bullet to protect his family. And God wants to give us that type of love. He wants to embed that in us so that we will do his purposes regardless of the cost. I've been soaking in Isaiah chapter 6 all week. Leif spoke on it last weekend, and I just when, when we have someone that comes in and speaks on a passage, I like to kind of just keep meditating on that over the next week and see what more I can get out of it. I, I believe the people we bring in hear from the Lord and deliver us a word, so I want to make sure I'm getting everything out of it. And I was just struck by this scene of Isaiah. He was given access to the throne room and and first, he, when, he, when he goes in, it says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And by the way, I don't know if you recognize it, but it seemed as though life was bumping up against the present political climate. There's a lot of disillusionment. Some would lay it at Biden's feet. Some would lay it at Trump's feet. But the fact is, a lot of people's hopes have died. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a man in whom the political hopes and the religious hopes of a nation were invested. And regardless of the side of the aisle that you're on, we know that there's a lot of chaos going on in our nation. And regardless of who you pointed at, I'm telling you, God is shaking things so we don't put our hope in man. And there's a prophetic element to that seen in Isaiah 6 that right now we're ripe for a revelation of who he is. We're ripe to be invited into the throne room and see him high and lifted up and his train fill the temple. And so Isaiah goes in and man he's undone but then the the angel comes with the coal off the altar and touches his lips. And then he hears the Lord say, "Who will go for us?" Whom can I send? And it struck me, it's like Isaiah, Isaiah's like a silent guest in the boardroom. It's like you can come in, but he's not partaking of this meeting. He's just looking in. And this guy who moments earlier thought, I'm about to melt into I'm about to just divide, you know, just be reduced to dust. He's so struck with fear at seeing the Lord for who he is. Now is stepping forward to volunteer to do something. I mean, you want to talk about a turn of events. But what happened is he heard the heart of God. There was this this expression out of God's heart, just this desire. Who can we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah steps forward and says, here I am, send me. He volunteers, he puts himself forward. And what we call Isaiah's call, in one sense, wasn't even a call. It was a volunteer. He put himself out there. And what I'm saying is this, that there's a place in God where we get hooked by his heart. That God no longer has to call us. That we're not like soldiers waiting for the next order. But we're sons and daughters. We're just looking for the next need that we know would move his heart and we get there first and we're calling him to it. And we're saying, God, visit this thing. Lord, move on this. And and so I'm thinking about this. I want to read you a scripture. You're like, finally, pastor. I've quoted some this morning. First Kings chapter eight. Look at verse 16. Solomon is praying a prayer at the dedication of the temple. This just moves my heart. Listen to what he says in dedicating the temple. Well, let's let's read verse, let's read verse 14. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there. But I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. Listen to what he said. He said, since... I took my people, Israel, out of Egypt until now. I haven't chosen a city. But what I did do is I chose a man. And then he's going to put his name on a city. Why? Because that man chose that city. There are other passages where it says that God chose Jerusalem to place his name but if you put it together this one with this verse it seems to imply that God did not make the decision he allowed David to make the decision what he did is he David had positioned himself in such a way he was a man after God's heart he had won favor with God and he said God I've picked Jerusalem. We know David had this fixation on Jerusalem. Even way back when he was just a young boy of some 16, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. It says that when he killed Goliath, he lopped Goliath's head off. He put the sword of Goliath in his tent, but he took the head and he did something strange. It was a big head, threw it over his back, and made the journey. To Jerusalem, which at the time was a Jebusite stronghold. It was a pagan city. And he brought it to that city. What a strange thing to do. Why? I believe that David was making a prophetic declaration. One down, and I'm coming for you next. Because he understood the value of this city. Because there was this prophetic history that it was once the seat of the great priest Melchizedek, a priest king. And David understood. Nobody else had this revelation. Moses understood that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. But in Moses' mind, we have no reason to believe that Moses recognized him anything other than a one-off anomaly that somehow he was a priest of God and he wasn't a Jew. But David in Psalm 110 refers to the order of Melchizedek. And so David had this revelation, hey, there's another way in. There's a priesthood that I I qualify for, I may not qualify to be a Levite, but as the tribe of Judah, I'm shut out. But if I can get, I can get into this Melchizedek thing. I believe that what the, the little hint David gives us in Psalm 110 is the reason he was so fixated on the city. David chose the city. What am I talking about? I don't have to pray. God, have you chosen Ankeny for the next city? Have, Lord, have you chosen Ankeny as a place for your name? It's irrelevant. What matters is if I can position my heart so he changes me or chooses me. If I can posture my heart that I have favor with him, then I can leverage my favor for this city. I can paint a big bullseye on my chest and lay across the city in intercession and cry out, come, Lord, come. I don't have to be called. I can call him because I'm moved by what moves him. And it's a higher place. And so often we relate with God out of this, oh God, this person's called and am I called? And that's great. That's, there's, there's place for that in scripture. That is part of the narrative of scripture that God will place his hand on a man or a woman and send them through apostolic authority or uh, pastoral authority or whatever. He'll call them, he'll place his hand upon them. But I'm telling you, there's something higher and something deeper in God. And that is when we call him, that when we pick up a burden, when we position our heart, when we've moved through that maturing love where we've had a revelation of his love for us and we begin to love him back and we begin to be moved by what moves him, the passage in Isaiah, you know what the cherubim say? His glory fills the earth. You want to know how God's glory is supposed to fill the earth? Through sons and daughters who scatter across the earth. And that we call his glory up, that resident glory out of the ground. We call his glory down. God is looking for people who will catch a burden for what moves him. And they're not waiting for some command like they're a soldier but they're already on it because they're a son and a daughter and they know that moves the heart of God and they get there before they're called and they begin to call him and they lay themselves over that thing and say, God, visit Iowa, visit Ankeny, visit Heartland, visit the U.S., visit Pakistan, visit Afghanistan. You fill in the blank, but you need to have something that you're crying out to God for. And if you don't, if there's not something that's moving you where you're laying yourself over that and calling him to that thing, you haven't stepped into that last phase, that last dimension of love. You can be a believer. You can really know you're loved and you can love him back. But there's this added dimension where we begin to care about what he cares about to the point where we'll leverage who we are in our favor We'll give and we'll go. We'll lay our life down for those things. And that's what God's wanting to put in us. That's that what I saw when God began to move those silver bars. The Lord is wanting to put within us a sacrificial heart that will give and go to what moves his heart. You look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was an apostle, a sent one. He had a call of specific people group, a very large one. Anybody that was not of Jewish blood. (laughs) He was an apostle to the Gentiles. His apostolic call was for the Gentiles. And he was stoned, whipped, beaten, left for dead, Some scholars believe he was killed and then came back and that's when he went into the third heaven when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, I know a man who 12 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. This man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but he saw things he can't talk about. Paul's talking about himself. I just find that so intriguing. Twice he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. It's like, I don't know if I was really there or just my spirit or I don't know, but I'm telling you, I saw some things, but I can't tell you about them. And some scholars believe that's when one of the times he was left for dead. He was willing to do all that for the Gentiles to receive the gospel. He lived a sacrificial life. That was his apostolic mandate, the call on him. But Paul had a call that he was making on God for the Jewish people. And he says in Romans, he says, I would be willing to go to hell to see Israel come to Christ. It wasn't even part of his calling. It wasn't the apostolic call, it was the intercessory call. And it was a call he was making on God. He was leveraging all the favor he had to move God. We see that with Moses. Moses says to God, he says, God, if you don't If you don't save Israel, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me too. I can't can't take it, Lord. And when he, he reached that point of intercession, God relented, and an entire nation was shifted and saved. There's something about God so thoroughly, deeply winning a human heart that it shifts things in the spirit. It's not earning things. It's the way things work in the spiritual realm. When there's great evil and great tragedy, God needs great surrender in the human heart to reach in because God has delegated the earth to man. And there's this divine exchange that happens. And so we see this thing that even though it wasn't part of his, quote, calling, Paul is willing to literally, I, don't, I can't even fathom that. I, I don't understand that. But he's willing to give his soul for this thing. And it wasn't even part of his call. He was calling on God. God wasn't calling on him. And God is wanting to do something in our hearts. we, We will be so moved that we beat him to it. That we're not waiting for the next command. But that we're captured by what captures him. It's what Jesus did where Jesus so identified with the thing he wanted to save that he became one of them. And there's something about us getting a burden when we see God's heart. It's not something that, it's beyond him calling us to this thing. It's a thing where we begin to wrap our life around a request. It's what Jesus did. He literally took on human flesh. And in order for God to, wash his hands of humanity, he would have then had to wash his hands of his son. And so in the incarnation, in him willing to becoming a man, he already bound himself to man so that the Godhead was now stuck with us because they had become one with us. The beginning of redemption was in the manger. And God is wanting to infect us with a burden where we re- literally wrap ourselves around something. And I'm telling you, we haven't really lived until that happens. When you begin to live for that thing and you're willing to exchange your life to see that thing happen. I think I said it a couple weeks ago. It's the old saying many of you have heard. If you don't have something worth dying for, you don't have something worth living for. You don't really live until you're willing to exchange your life for something greater, something of eternal value. And I feel like the Lord is inviting us. The plow blade is to go deep in our heart and he's inviting us. I want to ask you to stand. I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come once again and just do a work in our hearts. Let's ask him to go deep in our hearts. I believe the Lord wants to give some of you a call. He wants to give you some orders on the next thing. And then I believe some of you, he just wants to highlight, just like he did with with Isaiah. He just said, man, I wish I had someone to go. I was thinking this week about David when he was in the cave of Adullam. And he says, man, I wish I had a drink from the, the well at Bethlehem. And three of his guys heard that. It wasn't even a command. It was just a desire, a sigh, an afterthought. But to them, the, the wish of their king was their command. And they fought through enemy lines to fill up a water jug and then fought their way back and said, here, we heard what you said. Man, that's what I want to be. That's why those guys were called the mighty men. That's what set them apart. Holy Spirit, we're asking you, we're inviting you to do a work in our hearts. Lord, we're asking you that your love would so consume us that that reciprocal love for you would explode in our heart and it would free us from the shackles of selfishness and our own concerns. Lord, that we would throw ourselves on what you desire, that we would be like the mighty men that we would be like Isaiah. Would we hear a desire, it is our command. Because what you want is what we want. Lord Jesus, save us from wasting our lives. Lord, from living for temporal things. Lord, we are grateful for all the blessings you give us. And Lord, we enjoy them because they're from you. Every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. But Lord, we're not satisfied with the temporal. We're asking to do you to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Give us a revelation of you that'll free us from us. Hallelujah. Jesus. I'm going to open the altars. If you, if you want to do business with God, there's no pressure. If you don't feel so moved, you don't have to manufacture anything. But if you do, I just want to make that open just to allow the Lord to do a work. And uh, this is not something we do before man. It's something we do before God. And uh, if, if God is stirring something within you, then just respond. And Lord, I ask God, for the rest of us, Lord, whether we feel anything or not, Lord, whether our hearts are moved, Lord, we're asking, God, go in. Shift our value system. God, by a miracle of heaven, let us burn for you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I love you. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.